we did a study on founders alma maters with the performance of their startups. What we found is that those founders, actually their markup rates were higher than baseline. It is a positive signal to invest in someone who went to GSB, but that it's not as positive as you think. Because what's happening is that the startup founders are aware that they possess this positive signal and it's translated into higher valuations for their deals, which means, which, which lowers the chance of future markup. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast, where we talk about venture capital through the lens of limited partners. I'm your host, David Weisberg, co-founder and head of venture capital at 10X Capital. The world of LPs can be notoriously private and discreet, but on this podcast, we speak candidly with limited partners about their true feelings on venture, the ecosystem in 2023 and beyond. Good afternoon, Abe. Uh, Abe Othman from Angelist, uh, head of research. Uh, pleasure to meet you and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So let's get started uh, on something fun. So you're, you're, one of your most famous uh, slash infamous blog posts is what Angelist data says about power law returns and venture capital. And in this article, you claim or you need to claim that the data says that only top quartile or top 25% of VCs beat the entire basket of venture capital assets. And explain what you mean by this and how this could possibly be true. Sure. So this was one of the earliest things that I published at AngelList. I would encourage folks that are interested in seeing a little more detail on the research uh, of power laws within venture capital to take a look at uh, something that we published at the end of 2019 uh, called Startup Growth and Venture Returns, which is a little bit more, I would say, rigorously grounded. But the conclusions are relatively the same, which is that uh, early stage venture, we're talking pre-series B and ideally seed round is, is governed by a very extreme uh, power law in return multiples. Uh, meaning that there are many ways of characterizing what a power law means. One is, I think maybe one of the easiest ones is the divergence between mean and median or the divergence between average and typical outcome. And I think for really wild power laws, like what you observe in seed investing, um, it's, it's completely sort of unintuitive what happens there. So let me just give you sort of an illustration of that. You know, the Angelus platform as a whole has returned something around 26% net to LPs on a yearly basis. What that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that like a typical uh, Angelus SPV investment, you know, will earn, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30% a year. That's absolutely 100% not what that means. Uh, what that means is that the typical AngelList SPV investment will more or less be flat and that there's an incredibly small minority of investments that are responsible for producing virtually all of those returns. Consequently, uh, if you are a venture capital firm and you are picking 10 companies to do seed investments in, uh, you know, your returns are really going to be driven by how many of those companies end up returning in the, in the top decile. And, you know, the, the market return is to have, you know, one-tenth of the companies returning in the top decile, including all of the most outstanding companies are going to be in the market basket portfolio. And so you as a venture firm, like, in order to beat that market basket, really need to have two of your 10 picks be in the top decile and hopefully, like, have one of those picks be, like, relatively far into that top decile in order to beat the market. So that's kind of what the, the suggestion there is that uh, the typical venture firm will not be diversified, will not have enough bets to uh, achieve anything other than maybe a small lift off of the typical uh, investment return. And given the wild power law at play here, the divergence between average and typical outcome, uh, the average return, which is the market basket, will tend to be much, much higher than the, than the median venture firm. You know, there are some shenanigans that happen in terms of, of venture capital funds. Um, you know, we, we had always, an angelist had always closely looked at SVB's balance sheets. And, you know, a huge source of SVB's uh, profitability were, were capital call lines of credit, which, of course, have a completely innocuous explanation of, you know, time shifting and making sure that funds can pay for quarter's investments and whatever, but uh, also have a very not innocuous explanation, which is that they are used to juice funds, IRRs for reporting, um, you know, particularly if you're a fund manager and your goal is to have as high as possible of IRRs, you know, two and a half years in, 
when you're raising your next fund, uh, capital call lines of credit are a great way to do that. So I think actually some of the skepticism around this result is more a function of the steps that GPs take to get their fund to, uh, to have a, an artificially high IRR, at least in terms of reporting metrics where they want to talk about it. You know, obviously using those capital call lines of credit, the, the end result is, is a lower TVPI for your LPs, but in the short term, it can be used to juice IRRs. And I've heard a lot of people criticize that capital line of credit, but at the same time, that capital is not coming from LPs. Why is that an artificial metric? Why is that a vanity metric when, when LPs are not actually funding the, that capital? It depends on what you think the point of what the implication is when you report an IRR to a prospective LP. Uh, if, if you are reporting those IRRs with the intent of making a suggestion, even if there's a bullet point on your slide that, you know, past results are not indicative of future returns, of saying, like, we're going to return this much in the future on an IRR basis, it's very misleading to have a juiced IRR from capital and credit. Obviously, by a financial perspective, you know, that it, presumably you're not committing fraud. Like, that actually is the IRR of your fund, but it is misleading for... LPs to, to think, oh, wow, that's like a, you know, 70 plus percent IRR. And, you know, it does lead to, I think, in general skepticism about those numbers, discounting. I think, I, you know, I think the market is fairly efficient from that perspective, but it also tends to hurt funds that don't sort of play this game, um, that essentially you sort of have to, because if you, if you go out there and sort of, you, you've done well, you know, first few years and you're honestly reporting a 25% IRR or something, you know, you're going to look worse than the person reporting a, a 45% IRR um, that may have made the same or even worse bets, but just been much more clever about how they've handled their first set of capital calls. And you mentioned the median and the mean. You, of course, reported on the whole market, the 26% across all of AngelList. You have other other niche funds like the Access Fund, which invests alongside uh, the top, top VCs. What has produced better? And uh, what are the learnings from that comparison? I think one of the learnings, and we still don't really have a great sense of this, is that there is sort of um, there is kind of a minimum size or a minimum number of startups that you sort of need to be exposed to to get to, to get sort of the benefits of being broadly indexed. And that if you're not there, if you're only making ten investments, it's it's sort of a different game than if you're making say more than hundred. The Access Fund has, in general, um, in terms of the slice of investments that has had the opportunity to invest in. Um, Parker and the Access Fund has shown alpha in selecting those investments. The actual returns of the Access Fund, because of some, some um, investment sizing issues, are not as high as they should be from, but in terms of the perspective of just like, uh, you know, Parker got a vote yes or no, the, the subset of things that end up getting Access Fund investment, do those end up performing better than the universe as a whole? The answer is yes. Uh, that said, you know, the Access Fund is investing in a lot of stuff. Um, you know, something like 20 or 30% of deals. Um, so it is pretty broad as opposed to like a, a narrow selection of a small group of startups. Uh, you, you know, there's a question, does alpha exist in venture capital? And I think actually this is one of the lines of research that we have. I believe the answer is yes. So in a couple of ways. So first you have the existence of the access fund through whatever means that uh, the investment committee uh, is making their decisions. We have a very clean historical, you know, it's a really nice experiment, right? Because we know the investments the Access Fund had the opportunity to invest in. We can see their performance relative to a random similar size subset or a just, just a, a blanket kind of yes to everything. And the Access Fund does appear to have alpha. So uh, consistently across years. So it does appear that like, who knows how they do it? Maybe they do a deep dive in slide decks. Maybe they invest in companies you know, their logo is the color blue. I don't know, and I don't think it matters from the perspective of, of the question of like, is there alpha? Does it exist? Yes, I think the Access Fund is, is a certainly a positive example. We also looked at this, uh, and I don't think we've published this research. I think it's somewhere in our queue. We also turned the question around. Is there a subset of syndicated deals on the Angelus platform that were sort of a priori identifiable as being worse quality than other deals? And what we did for that identification based on discussion with the investment committee was look at listed co-investors. So if you have a deal, uh, an early stage syndicated deal where the only co-investors that are list that have listed co-investors, so the GP has entered this information and the only co-investors they've listed only ever appear in that deal, which is a 
about 10% of the deals on the, uh, of the early stage syndicates. Uh, that subset is noticeably and consistently worse performing than the market as a whole. So these characteristics suggest to me that there is, in fact, uh, despite some appearances the contrary, there is, in fact, a rank order list of seed investment opportunities. We can dive in on, on what our shape of that universe looks like. You know, the question of like, I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's supported by our data to have the view of early stage investment as being throwing darts at a dartboard uh, or being, you know, completely random or some undifferentiated mess. I don't think that's supported in the data. And just to double click on that, you're saying that only 10% of all deals on AngelList would not fit the quality bar. Can, can you explain that? I, I think that they are a priori identifiable as worse than uh, deals that do have a recognizable. By recognizable, I mean they do multiple deals, uh, co-investors. The interesting thing is, is you know, these, these investments take time to season. If you go back to the startup uh, growth and venture returns paper, you see that what happens is that as companies compound returns, the return multiple alpha parameter gets lower, i.e. the return multiples get wilder over time. And so right now, the return multiple that we fit to these like bad, or maybe it's better described as like marginal subset of deals is above two, but there is a reasonable likelihood it will fall to below two. Even this marginal subset of deals on Angel's platform will fall to below two. I think realistically what that means is probably the, the sort of the double gate of the Angelus platform, which is like first your deal has to be approved to be on the platform and then there have to be enough LP. You have to get enough LP interest to actually like close the deal. It probably puts the bar higher than what we identified in the startup growth and venture returns paper, which is like the credible deal threshold, which is worth diving into, I think. Let's step back for a minute and define power laws. How would you explain power laws and venture capital to a lay person or to finance professionals and other asset classes? The easiest way to describe power laws is that they have the opposite intuition of everything you've been told about in, in, in terms of, of typical, the typical world. So I'll just give you an illustration that, you know, I've been working with this stuff for years and still this surprised me. We had an inquiry from an Angelus GP whose, you know, startup had just had, they'd made an early stage investment. They just raised series A, their, you know, investment after two and a half years was now marked at 2X. And they asked like, hey, would it be possible to find out like, you know, how long does it take for the typical angelist invest? Like, is this fast? Is this slow? Like, how long does it take for the typical angelist investment to like get to 2X and then get to 3X in terms of return multiple? I think there's a, a vision of this world again, where it's like, well, you know, well, the typical investment is going to return, you know, about, you know, 15 or 20% a year. And so, you know, you're going to get like a noisy distribution around that. And so, you know, it'll be, you know, four years for that investment to double. And in reality, when we looked at the actual returns of, of these deals, you know, the median was flat and even the 75th percentile took years to get to a 2x return. And that really it was even the question itself begged a structure of returns that don't that don't exist for venture capital. It begged this idea that, that I think is common in the public markets of like, well, you know, the market's returning about 10% a year. So what I'm going to get is some, you know, noisy distribution around this 10% a year. And that is not what are like, what I'm saying for venture is it doesn't look like that at all. In a normal distribution, the average outcome and the typical outcome are the same. And we have become very, very used to thinking about things in that context. Like, like so much of our mental kind of framework for the world is based around thinking about things like that. And in power laws, that's just wildly false. Like, uh, especially for the most extreme power laws, you know, they have a well-defined median and the mean doesn't exist. It's, it's, you know, in some sense, it is it's unbounded, right? It's, I'm not going to say infinite, um, but so they're like a, a direct challenge to, I think, a lot of our implicit assumptions about how things work. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. The Limited Partner Podcast is proudly sponsored by AngelList. If you're a founder or investor, you'll know AngelList builds software that powers the startup economy. AngelList has recently rolled out a suite of new software products for venture capital and private equity that are truly game-changing. They digitize and automate all the manual processes that you struggle with in traditional fundraising and operating workflows, while providing real-time insights for funds at any stage, connecting seamlessly with any back office provider. If you're in private markets, you'll love Angelus' new suite of software products. And for private companies, thousands of startups from $4 million to $4 billion evaluation have switched to Angelus for cap table management. 
It's a modern, intelligent equity management platform that offers equity issuance, employee stock management, 409A valuations, and more. I've been a happy investor in Angelus for many years, and I'm so excited to have them as a presenting sponsor. So if you're ready to level up your startup or fund with Angelist, visit www.angelist.com slash TLP. That's Angelist slash TLP to get started. Back to the show. I think from the perspective of finance and perspective of asset classes, I think what I like to say about early stage venture capital is that it is probably best contextualized as the opposite of a bond market. Um, so in bond, like traditional bonds, not like weird high yield bonds or anything. Typically for bonds, like there are bond index funds or whatever, and they, you know, they measure you know, thousands and thousands of bonds and you have bond index funds that you can invest in that, that have like a few hundred of those bonds in it. And you know what? They track almost perfectly. Whereas if you have a few hundred startups versus you know, the 15,000 startup universe, there's a very high risk you won't get any, anything close to tracking. Um, in bond funds, it's actually really easy to beat the market because like the whole index like is exposed to like the random couple bonds that end up defaulting. If you just have a bond portfolio that just doesn't have any of that rare default event bonds, like you, you like congratulations, like you've outperformed the market. Bonds, their price movements are over time are just insanely correlated and have virtually no idiosyncratic. Um, you know, there there can be ratings changes perhaps, but. There's virtually no idiosyncratic component to the movement of bond prices over time. Whereas like for startups, it's all idiosyncratic. Uh, there, there's virtually no market effect at all. It's all, you know, did this startup hit the milestones that it needed to, to get to the next fundraising round. And you said something there. You said uh, a 200 portfolio startup portfolio would not get close to a 1500 or 15,000 startup portfolio. Can you explain that? Uh, it would not reliably track the market. It might it might outperform. It is more likely that it will underperform, but it will it will definitely not track the performance of the market as whole. And I think that's one of the most challenging things about about like, especially you know one of the one of the, I think the foundational things that my research has tried to show is that early stage investing is its own asset class, and that when we take ideas that are borrowed or otherwise co opted from other asset classes like public markets investing, it it just doesn't work. So again, to give you an illustration, you know, there's like, like, oh, I, I invest in a certain kind of company, kind of like I'm a sector specific investor. And so I should only be compared to like, sure. If you look on AngelList, the or one of the highest performing sectors on AngelList uh, is product, it's called productivity tools. And it has an IRR of, I, I don't want to quote this, but it's, you know, very, very high IRR uh, for productivity tools. And you might think, wow, that's like a really growing market, you know, with work from home or whatever, that's like super exciting, like got to make some product too. Really, that's Notion. It's because Notion is, has just blown up. Um, I love Notion, by the way, I use it all the time. Great, great product. It's not the productivity tool sector that's done well. It's the investment known as Notion that's done really well. That is kind of a challenge to people who are used to thinking about like, oh, I want like sector overweight or sector underweight. Like that's not at all what's happening here. It's it's these individual idiosyncratic companies. Um, so again, this is an example of a model where we go from public markets investing and it just maps very badly onto what happened, what's actually happening in, in the early stage universe. So let's assume the idiosyncrasy and, and the power laws. I think that's that's something that's widely at least quoted or stated in venture capital, whether whether it's implicitly understood or not. In terms of signals, what percentage of those power law, what, what percentage of those notions or Facebooks and Googles are identifiable as top 10, top five, top 1% opportunities at the time of investment at the early stage? Has your research done any, any on that? And also what signals, uh, more importantly, uh, do, you, do you believe and does your research show are, are predictors of this? I think this has been one of the most surprising results for my research because I, I tend to not have the highest view of venture capitalists. My research has suggested is that certainly not on the individual investment level, but on one level zoomed up, the venture market is actually relatively efficient. And I think that's very, so like by that, I mean, price tends to have a meaning um, and like a, a deal that's priced at 2x another deal will tend to have a structure where it will return 2x the amount of money. That's what a pricing efficiency kind of means in this context. That's kind of surprising. One reason that's surprising is that what you're buying when you're an early stage investor, in eight years, when you look back on that investment, it will almost 
absolutely be the, like, there's no, there's virtually no early stage investment where you're like, man, I got a solid 10% a year return out of that investment. And it was like pretty good. It's like, it's either going to zero or it's be, you know, it's going to make at least three X, 10 X, you know, 20 X, 2000 X, right? Like you are either very much overpaying or very much underpaying for every single one of those investments. And yet when you zoom up a level, it does look fairly efficient. What that means is that uh, it actually, you know, and as much as I would like this to not be the case, it actually minimizes the values of signals significantly. So again, to give you an example, we did a, we did a study on founders alma maters with the performance of their startups. And what we found was that actually, so, you know, okay, hey, I'm going to invest in like someone went to GSB or someone went to Harvard or someone went to MIT. What we found is that those founders, actually their markup rates were higher than baseline. So that it is a, it is a positive signal to invest in someone who went to GSB, but that it's not as positive as you think, because what's happening is that the startup founders are aware that they possess this positive signal and it's translated into higher valuations for their deals, which means, which, which lowers the chance of future markup. And we actually think that's probably more than half of the like boon of this signal is actually captured by the founders. And so as a result, if there is alpha in deal selection, venture cap, like there's a sort of naive thing, which is like, you know, the signal is still positive. It's not like, GSB founder deals are so overpriced that it's actually a negative signal and you should never do a GSB deal. It's more that it's like a lot less positive than you might think. And this is also the case for say, you know, repeat founders of successful companies, a positive signal, but you're paying for that signal. Um, and that payment is what uh, really reduces, like that kind of re substantially reduces investor returns. Like it makes it less of like a clever ARB and more of like an appropriate value that you're paying for, for a deal. We think that if there is alpha from like signals, it comes from like, it comes from unconventional places. So like, uh, I believe the top three uh, schools for markups by founders were good schools that are a little bit unconventional. There are University of Washington, Waterloo, and Brown, I believe were the top three. So it's like very good schools, but not, you know, Harvard, Stanford, MIT. So you know, that's it's like, a, it's like a second order is where you'd find any investment properties. And even then, you know, properties are still relatively small and you are still paying a little bit for that signal. But like the benefit of having a Waterloo founder is like a little bit better than the, than the markup that they might charge for that, for that signal. The way this fits into the rank order list is that we do think this rank order list of deals exists. And, you know, from like best, best seed deal all the way down to like worst possible deal. As you go down that list, what happens is that the, the signals become worse and the price gets lower, but that we think the exit possibilities also like actually fall faster than the price falls. And so at a certain point, because what we're looking at is this alpha less than two power law as a threshold, uh, at a certain point, the exits no longer justify uh, the price and you actually get sort of a different asset class. And so that, that somewhere on that list, there's a bar that says like everywhere above this is, is gonna pull from an alpha, uh, you know, two or lower power law. And those are credible deals and they are early stage startups that can grow into huge markets and produce huge returns if they, if they do well. And you should have exposure to all of those. Now you could have differential exposure, you could weight more towards the highest signal ones, that's fine. But in some sense, you need to have exposure to all of those deals. Below that threshold, the rules are very different. You, you, there's a lot more benefit of being more selective. But that's the, that's the universe as we see it. Um, and I think the most surprising thing is that actually the startup pricing is, is actually at least relatively within deals is, is actually, it, it's, it's, uh, it's quite efficient. And I think just given my dim view of VCs, I think a lot of that pricing efficiency probably comes from founders who are probably very able to say like, well, that guy's company got a 30 million pre-money valuation, but like my company's doing better, so I should have a higher value. Like I think a lot of that pricing efficiency probably comes from founders and not from VCs. But I, you know, I'm also willing to say like I came into my research with a very, very dim view of VCs. And uh, this is something where I've actually been like, hmm, VCs are not leaving $100 bills on a sidewalk. They might be leaving like $10 bills on the sidewalk, but there's no like one weird trick that will like make you an obvious investor that all great startups have. Instead, what you get are a bunch of signals that are sort of mutual. Everyone kind of sees them. Every, the founders know what they mean. They're reasonably efficiently priced. Uh, they're still positive. The reason that I think this model is correct 
it has kind of one implication, which is that there is one weird trick, which is there's one positive signal that you don't have to pay for. And that's the participation of a top tier co-investor in the deal. And so if you know my model of the world is correct, what you would see is you would see a lot of venture firms whose only kind of job or only thing they do is try to sneak into deals that are being led by or priced by a top tier venture firm. And that is, I think, the exact world we live in. Um, I'm not going to name names, but there are, I would say, dozens, possibly even hundreds of venture firms whose only like, whose first question in diligence is who else is investing. I think that's the world we live in. And I think what this research suggests is at least a mathematical justification for why. And that's because it's the positive signal you don't have to pay for, as opposed to every other positive signal about a company. Well, let's say Sequoia is investing in a Series A, a very high signal. I, I think you would agree. What, what are some ways that that signal is dimmed? What are other criteria that makes it less strong of a signal when a strong signal uh, from, from the lead is present? I think every startup is so wildly idiosyncratic that, I mean, how big is that data set? Every startup in it is unique. So I don't, I actually, that's probably a fool's game to try to, to, try to think about that. One famous fund, uh, and there's even an article uh, comparing uh, Peter Thiel and Founders Fund to, to Angelist. Uh, in many ways, Peter Thiel takes the opposite philosophical approach and has done quite well. Are there cases when a concentrated portfolio will beat this, this market approach? A couple things with that. So the first is that Founders Fund, we have them as one of the most prevalent co-investors in, in Angelus data. So like, you know, they're not, made, they're not backing a handful of founders. Um, they're backing a lot of folks uh, and well into the three figures uh, annually of, of, of startup investors. We see a lot of founder funds deal. I think they're either number one or number two, depending on how we have Y Combinator classified in terms of like co-investors. They're a very, very frequent co-investor. So now that said, there is a very interesting site, I think, that I want to talk about, about from um, Ben Evans, who I think used to be Andreessen, but is not anymore. But he had this study where he looked at the performance of venture funds and found that in the top decile of performing funds, there were actually more goes to zero than in kind of the next decile. And the idea being that, or a higher fraction of goes to zero. And the idea being that like the real best venture funds really swing for the fences. And I've actually heard that as justification for GPs making certain investments because it's like, oh, you know, this is like a big bet, but we're swinging for the fences. And I actually, I, I, I disagree with that. What I think you're seeing are that top decile of funds are successful early stage investors where you have a higher risk of failure, but because they are successful, their successes look like giant home runs. Um, I don't think they were intended to be swing for the fences. I just think what you're observing in that top decile are like the most successful early stage investors. So it is the case that if you look at the best performing funds, they will have relatively concentrated portfolios of several companies that have done exceptionally well. But that doesn't necessarily mean the best way to produce good returns for your LPs is to take a concentrated portfolio. We joke that like the best portfolio is to put all your money into the next Uber. And the second best portfolio is to invest in everything, or at least have exposure to everything. So I, yeah, I mean, I, I would push back on that in a few ways. Like it is, it is absolutely the best thing in the world to have a concentrated portfolio and to get lucky. That's, you're going to do that, like, congratulations, like you've done exceptionally well. But for those of us who are not necessarily banking on luck, a concentrated portfolio will tend to just increase volatility and lower returns, as opposed to being a, a, a magic ticket to, to, doing, to doing exceptionally well. You mentioned something, something there that's really interesting in terms of top decile and loss ratio. Have you seen uh, so, some kind of uh, almost power law distribution in terms of loss ratio and, and performance. Have you seen any any uh, meaningful correlation there? Uh, yes, but it's lower than you think. So we don't do, I mean, it's it's kind of loss, especially given the timeline here, it's kind of loss ratio, which is more just um, markup rates. So like, did a deal you made three years ago get marked up? You can assume that if the answer is no, like there's a very, very good chance that investment's going to get looked certainly be a, 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 maybe not a total write-off, but at least on the negative end of the spectrum and not, uh, if your investment hasn't been marked up in three years, you're probably, it's probably not the next Uber. So that said, we, we think there is actually a, a surprisingly light correlation, put it maybe around 0 0.4, 0 0.5 between market rate over what would be expected and actual kind of IRR and TVPI of that fund. The differences are like GPs who are very lucky or very unlucky. Like they've gotten a lot of markups, so for whatever reason, those markups seem fairly small. 
And I actually, when we were doing this research originally, I actually called up like on the phone. I actually I knew the guy. Like the 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 GP that we identified on the Angelus platform as being the most unlucky GP. So having the uh, the most you know excess markups, like a lot of deals that were that were getting you know uh, getting to Series A or Series B, but pretty bad returns. Like not still positive because like it's it's hard to have a lot of markups and not have positive returns. But like IRR of I think it was like ten percent a year uh, net tail fees. And I actually called the guy up and I'm like. Hey, so you were identifying your data. Are you trying to hit singles instead of swinging for the fences? And he was like, I'm incredibly surprised to hear that. Like all the companies I'm investing in, I think could be, you know, thousand X returns. You know, I haven't been super happy with the returns we've been getting. I guess the markups have been nice. And, you know, obviously this is an anecdote, but I think it was telling that like, I, I do think the structure exists. Like it, there's not, there is a correlation. It's hard to have a lot of markups and uh, not make money. Um, and it's hard to have a lot of write-offs and, and at the same time make money. So there is a correlation, but it's it's weaker than you'd think. And I, I actually think both of these are informative for future returns, both current returns as well as how frequently your deals are marked up or, or written off. So, so what is the correlation between TVPI and DPI? Uh, in bear markets, DPI has has become popular again. How would you characterize that? I can't I can't talk about it with Angelus. We just we have such a small DPI. I think. For what it's worth, you know, the platform is huge. So we have, I mean, I, I feel like I should give a plug. You know, AngelList has distributed more than a billion dollars to its LPs, but that's a small fraction of the money that's been invested on the platform. Like we don't have a long enough data set. We don't have enough exits. One of the challenges with AngelList data, like this, I'm just telling you, it's a weakness of our data. AngelList really started humming, you know, maybe 2018, 2019 in terms of just like being able to say like, oh, this is actually the venture market. And so when you talk about exits, it's like, you know, you're looking at companies and from like the 2015 era of AngelList where, you know, AngelList was capturing like a, a slight, you know, maybe 10% of the market. So 90% of those exits are not reflected in AngelList data. My answer to that is like, check back in a decade um, and we should have really good data on, on distributions and stuff. Um, it's funny, actually, for, for its worth, this is not the first question I've gotten about uh, DPI. And I, I think I think one of the access fund things is kind of joked like, hey, if you're looking for cash on cash returns, like early stage venture is not the place for you. Like you should go buy a multifamily apartment building outside of Houston. But I don't know if you've seen kind of the news lately. Actually, it seems like multifamily, you know, apartment buildings outside of Houston are not doing particularly well right now. So uh, I, I do think there's a, there's no sure thing. Um, and, you know, what the, what the world looks like uh, has changed a lot over the past uh, few years. So tell me, a lot of people asked me uh, to ask you about the quant fund. Uh, what could you say about that? Yeah, I think this is a good illustration of of kind of the the shape of the way that we're doing investing. So the quant fund is using uh, most of the money is going towards investing in the companies that are hiring the best on what is well found, what used to be Angelus talent in terms of tracking applicant like top applicants. And when we were back testing this, like one of the cool things is that we can do like back tests, which is very rare for venture. So who are the companies that we would have wanted to invest in in the past? And we identified like Bolt, Calm, Chime, Divi Homes, DoorDash were all companies that were at or near the top of this list years and years ago when they were early stage companies. And so we're like, hey, this seems like a pretty auspicious signal. I also think, you know, how does this fit in general with the model? Well, a few things. The model of the world is that as an LP, you should want exposure to every credible seed stage deal. Where credibility, I can tie it back to that alpha list into power law thing on the rank order list. The challenge that you could give to that credibility threshold is like that, that word credible is doing a lot of work. What it essentially means, uh, does that mean that GPs should just broadly spray and pray? Uh, no, they should invest within their area of expertise to be able to, to, to know what a credible deal is. And that, I think, is what distinguishes seed as an asset class, is that it's very easy to know what a credible Series A is, right? Is there a professional ca venture capitalist taking a board seat as part of an equity financing? That's a credible Series A. For Seed, it's like two dudes, a slide deck. They've kind of been working at it for six months, sort of. Company might not even exist yet. And it's like, is that deal, is that, is that credible? Is what they're talking about credible? Is this credibly going to be a billion-dollar company? That requires specific expertise. And I think what the results suggest is that, like, the best, so LPs should broadly, invest broadly among a number of GPs each of which have their own kind of specialized area of expertise to be able to, to evaluate this credibility threshold. 
And that's the model of this world. So how does this play into the quant fund? Well, you know, we think that we have this interesting credibility filter, which is uh, looking at this kind of inbound uh, hiring signal. And we are investing broadly within it. So we write really small checks, 100, 150K, and we're trying to invest in, you know, as many companies as possible. Um, so, you know, 100 plus companies with these small checks. Um, and that is the game plan of the quant fund. So we think we have this little edge uh, from our proprietary data, and we are investing in such a way that is compatible with the way that I think that the math speaks about what the world looks like. And you, you mentioned credibility. Um, would you go with a, is it partner versus fund? Would you go with a top decile firm or a top decile partner that has left to found his own firm? I, I can answer this from a data perspective and then kind of from a, a startup founder perspective. So from a data perspective, I think the preponderance of evidence leans towards partners. Um, just to give a good illustration, I want to give a shout out to, to Jonathan Shu of uh, Tribe Capital, um, who's very helpful, actually, when we were talking about the early steps of the Quant Fund. Um, it was very encouraging. Uh, Jonathan's a great guy. We have tri like, He left Social Capital to start Tribe. We have Tribe as one of our best co-investors, like in terms of, of our own internal rankings of co-investors. We have Tribe as one of the best ones. I think there's, and there are some other examples that I don't, might be a little bit less politically correct that I don't want to mention. I think the preponderance of evidence is towards partners and not firms on the data side. That said, as you know, wearing a startup founder hat, one of the, for, especially for an early stage company, one of the best values that a VC brings to a financing is that you can put their logo on your webpage and prospective employees will view your company as much more credible because you're backed by you know, a, a venture firm that they may have heard of. And so from that perspective, maybe it's firms. I think, it's, I think it's a little bit of a balance, but I, I would encourage startup founders to uh, not be afraid of going for founders. I do think it's that the sense of, or with going with partners and that there is a sense in general that I think, in general, I think, you know, AngelList, of course, is a little bit talking in our book here, but, you know, we think solo GPs or small partnerships tend to, uh, tend to outperform larger partnership mega funds. You said something very interesting there about solo GPs versus traditional incumbent funds. Is that going back to the signal? Is it that solo GPs have less capital to deploy, so they invest at a lower valuation? What, what is some potential rationale for that phenomenon? Part of it might be that like solo GPs tend to hustle harder. They may also have, again, I think it goes back to this idea of the ideas that an early stage GP needs to be able to evaluate credibility within their like specific domain of expertise. I think it's probably also the case that for a solo GP versus a larger partnership, especially like a more junior partner, like they might know that a company is a good company, but not be able to get it through the partnership. And similarly, they may, you know, assent to deals where they don't really, you know, this is not my space, but if, you know, this other partner says it's good, I, I guess I have to go along with it. Or there could be horse trading within the partnership for various investments. I think the solo GP structure tends to just clarify it. It's like, do, do, do you have an area of expertise where you can adequately assess uh, credibility? And I think one of the reasons you see, like, you see the solo GPs tend to, to overperform is that the answer to that is like, yes. Because chances are, if you, if you don't know what you're doing, but also think you know what you're doing, like you're not gonna go out and raise, like you're not gonna go out on your own and raise your own fund and, and do that one thing that you think you're doing when you can have, have a, a sort of a safer partnership structure in place. I also think there's probably something with early stage investing where, I mean, yeah, it is smaller checks, but it could just be because it's it's earlier stage. Um, I think there's something with earlier stage where in general, like a partnership structure is hard to make work well because you are looking for like fairly disruptive companies. Um, and so like anything that maybe tends towards uh, consensus our consensus view could be really limiting to that. So I, I tend to really like, you know, solo GPs or small partnerships. Um, I think their performance is, is, is generally quite good. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think it's a good fit for the model of can you assess credibility of, of, of a deal that might not even be a company yet. Zooming out, you've been published research for, for a long time. How have you seen the LP community or broader ecosystem evolve on, on these topics? Because at the time, it was a very contrarian view. Have you seen them kind of accept it a bit more 
or how have you seen it evolve? I'd like to hope that the idea of going broad for early investing has been more has been more accepted for LPs. I, I, that said, you know, for the quant fund, we had a really it was hard to raise that fund, um, and actually we struck out with all we have we have some but not many conventional venture LPs that are there, and actually our largest investors and frankly the easiest checks to get were from quant hedge funds or principals at quant hedge funds, where the idea of like, you know, you, you pitch them and we're like, we invest based on this proprietary signal. And they're like, that's what investing is. You, you know, like that, of, co- of course you do. That's the, that's the nature of what an investment means. Uh, and they're not, you know, they're not traditional venture LPs. So I don't know if my research work has resonated enough to make that fundraise easy. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly I do think there's also a sense of, even with saying like, Spray and pray, right? The, the idea, and I, I brought this up in the startup for the measure returns paper. It sounds a lot better, right? To say, hey, I'm going to use my network to find, you know, five to 10 startup founders who are like really, you know, they're going to change the world with their it's like narrow set of businesses that I'm super excited about. Um, and I'm going to work closely with them. And like, you know, it just, it sounds like you're being a better steward of LP money than if you're just like, we're going to blast off so many investments. I'm not going to know what these companies do. It just, it, you know, one of these things sounds like a bespoke, artisanal, like really kind of thoughtful way of managing somebody's money that frankly justifies carry. And the other way sounds flippant and unserious in some sense. And I think what's still still provocative is that I actually think the latter way is a better way to do real estate investing. And so that is, you know, I, I think the biggest mistake that LPs can make is not being exposed to enough companies. Um, I know one of the big changes that I've had as an LP, putting you know a third or fourth hat on for this interview since I started AngelList, is I am now an LP in several venture funds. Whereas before I was like, well, I do my own early stage investing. Like I don't need to pay someone carry for deals. Like I don't want to do that. I was now just like, if there's differentiated, credible deal flow that uh, someone will give me, like I will definitely be an LP in their fund. So for instance, like one of the funds I'm an LP in is is Ryan Hoover's Weekend Fund. Um, Ryan Hoover is the product founder, and he is like an exceptional eye and brand within this like space of kind of like fun consumery companies. And that's like something I don't, I, I don't know anything about those companies. I don't see opportunities to invest in them. But I, and then the ones that I do, I can't assess at all. Um, and so I have no problem paying Ryan Carey to do a good job of finding and investing in those deals because it was like literally not something I could do myself. And at the same time, I think that those deals that's playing in the deep end of the pool. That's playing in the credible seed deal uh, threshold area. So yeah, I think that's, it's, it's certainly changed my behavior, this idea of trying to be broadly exposed. You know, I think it, it will be a matter of time before it's, it, it changes behavior more broadly, but I do think it's the way, uh, it's the way things are going. There's, there's also just, there is like one hack with the broad investing as well, which is that typically when someone discusses their, their prowess as an investor, the way you see that prowess is by listing their like number one or top three investments that they've made. And if you've invested in a ton of companies, your top three will tend to look quite better than someone who's invested in 15. And so, uh, you know, there is like, if you want kind of a, a life hack way that this kind of broad investing is likely to, you know, possibly take over as a, as a modality, it's that it's that it's a, it's the hack around this, like, thing where you, you don't see the 97 failures, you just see the three huge unicorns. And that's and that and therefore you're you're an awesome investor and therefore people want you on their cap table. Another another variation on that hack that's well known is investing right before the IPO and saying I was a private investor in this company. That that's that's a common one in BC. You mentioned Ryan Ryan Hoover and and his consumer expertise. Uh, how much of a signal and how, what has the data showed you in terms of somebody's domain of expertise with Ryan or the hypothetical GP that's really good in one sector, be really bad in another sector? This is a, that's a great question for future research. Like, I think that's actually a blog post that we should do on AngelList, like by the end of the year is to see if there's uh, sector effects. I can tell you that, so the early stage investing that my friends and I do is through a partnership called Indicator. And at our portfolio reviews, you know, after years of investing together, we now joke that we make three kinds of investments. We make deep tech investments, we make fintech investments, and we make bad investments. And the funny thing is that we continue to make 
bad investments. They look really good. Um, and we're like, this one's going to be different. And then almost inevitably, they end up in the, in the loser column. And so it's kind of been like a honing of our area of expertise. So I, I mean, just based on my, like my personal lived experience suggests that sector effects are 100% real. Whether or not we have like good enough, fine-grained enough data to like tease those out on AngelList is, is, is another question. Because I think it's like the sector labels can be hard. It can be fuzzy. Startups can change what they do. Are you enterprise? Are you B2B? Are you SaaS? I think we all have those as different like tag labels. Like, yeah, that can be tough. Um, but I do think that's a, it's a super interesting question. And my guess is that, yeah, um, I will say that I think that is something from the public markets that does carry or at least hedge fund investing that carries over to GPs, which is, uh, style drift is a known real negative thing. And I would imagine in, in hedge fund investing, and I imagine that's a, a negative thing in venture. And I mean, you see those effects as well, right? Like or most hedge fund managers style drift because they do really well in their narrow area of expertise. And suddenly they have, they have to manage all this huge money. And they're like, they become macro investors making bets on the price of oil. Whereas like before they were like investing in, you know, uh, stage two biotech company or something, right? For, uh, for GPs, I think you see the same thing. Like, you know, you have a fund that's a small fund that's only investing in this narrow area and maybe they scale up and raise a ton more money. And then suddenly they're doing all sorts of wacky stuff. I would not be surprised if that analog to the public markets did hold up um, in, in venture investing, in the data. Speaking of style drift, AUM drift is a big issue in venture capital. H how do you look at that? And how do you expect that, that to, to change the signal and the nature of returns? In terms of power laws, also uh, in terms of valuation and stage, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, the growing AUM and the growing valuations. It has been just to maybe like, flip it around a bit. It's been one of the, and it's hard because I mean, there's real people with real dreams and real money being invested, but like, it's been frustrating to see in the data, how I would describe it as stubbornly, persistently high early stage valuations have been even over the past kind of crash. And, you know, we, I think we have a piece on the blog that's going to be coming out soon, but up until second quarter of last year, you know, the median uh, price equity seed round was done at a 20 million pre money. And we think that, and now it's at like 17 million pre money. And we think that needs to go down to like 12, 12 and a half for it to be like a sustainable recovery and to return. Like, I think that's where we're going to end up. And I, my sense is that the glut of money that is present is what is support. Like, I think there's a couple of things like, whether it's structural or not. It, a glut of money that's going earlier stages might be supporting these valuations and keeping them artificially high. But that said, we also think that there's a ton, there's going to be over the next year, a ton of pricing pressure, at least seed. Uh, now that Series A investments have been kind of moved in price a decent amount, like if you, if you do like a lagged, you know, what were seed prices a year ago versus Series A prices now, that like ratio peaked a year ago at like 6x. And I think that encouraged a lot of price inflation at seed um, because, you know, investors could just be like, well, yeah, we can double the price of this and we'll still make 3x. So it's not a problem. Now that ratio is like at 2x and still falling. I think that will encourage pricing discipline uh, or may encourage pricing discipline on the part of, of earlier stage investors. What happened with SoftBank? Maybe that era of mega fund is, is over um, and, you know, a, a scientific experiment was run and it, it came up with a failure. Um, and that to me is like, yeah, I mean, I, I can't be completely sure what the future looks like, but my sense is that the prices still need to come down, that the presence of folks who are, who are keeping these prices up is, is just serving to delay kind of the inevitable pricing recognition. Cause I do think it's kind of a, like prices just need to be a certain amount to be, to accommodate risk appropriately. Um, and I think that, you know, folks that are doing, I think the idea that uh, of, of SoftBank, the SoftBank South, like vision fund style things is, is probably done for an investment generation. I'm sure in 10 years, Masa will be back with future vision fund that will be even bigger. But I think, I think that's done for the, for the near term. I think a lot of people misunderstand the SoftBank thesis, which was capital as a moat, which is an interesting thesis. In retros retrospect, every VC is a genius and could predict every potential outcome. But I, I thought it was bold and interesting, although obviously 
uh, ultimately not successful. Uh, as a concluding question, uh, what do you wish people knew about AngelList and what are some misconceptions? What would you like to you know, resolve and, and for people to know about your platform? What's out there tends to be pretty bad. Like I, I happened to look at the AngelList Wikipedia page late, uh, recently and I was like, this is not, this does not at all look like what AngelList is. I've gotten that it's a, most people are familiar with it because it's a jobs platform, obviously not anymore. And then if they're familiar with it beyond that, they're familiar with it um, as you know an LP where they had to click through a bunch of screens and maybe it pulled an ACH in their bank account. I think AngelList's actual clientele are GPs and founders. I think that's probably the best analog to what AngelList uh, actually is, is like a financial services company that happens to have this startup thing attached because for whatever reason, like real companies, you know, when they need to raise debt or equity, they talk to bankers, but startups, the founders do their own banking. Um, and so it is like a financial services company that has a very vigorous founders and startups arm. And I think that's probably the best analog to what, to what AngelList is right now. And yeah, I think it's really uh, hard to see that. I think certainly from the outside, because, you know, th those, those products are like, most people don't know what a prime brokerage for a hedge fund does. Like that's just, you know, the people, like the people who need to know that know exactly, you know, what a prime brokerage is and who they use for a prime bro broker, but it doesn't affect people's day to day lives on the street to know what that is. And so I think what's weird about AngelList, I think one of the, one of the gaps is that like for a long time, you know, most people only saw AngelList as like, a, like the thing that touched the most people was the jobs website. And the thing that touched the second most people was the, uh, was the investment kind of LP closing flow slash investment dashboard. And then what AngelList actually is, is something kind of uh, different that virtually nobody actually sees. Um, and that I think is the, the cause of kind of the maybe misperception of AngelList within the market. Great, I'd also add you guys have a great GP fund admin platform uh, in many ways, streamlining a lot of the pains of some of the most famous and biggest services platforms out there. So uh, Abe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's great to catch up and always chat with another quant nerd such as myself. Thank you for elucidating a lot of interesting things, a lot of things that uh, keep me up at night uh, and that I, I've always wanted to know and uh, look forward to uh, catching up live soon. Thank you so much, David. Great questions. Enjoyed the interview a lot. Thanks for listening to the Limited Partner Podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with your VC and LP friends and anyone interested in learning more about the venture ecosystem. Please follow Eric and I on Twitter at Eric Tornberg and D Weisberg linked in the show notes below.